0: Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermas. It's my pleasure to welcome you once again to our podcast. I want to encourage you to bookmark radio.acton.org for all of our podcasting archives. There's a number of years' worth of podcasts there, a lot of good stuff to listen to at your leisure. And also uh, remind you to check out the Acton Institute Power Blog. If you don't do so on a regular basis already, you should. It's blog.acton.org. Lots of good news, information, links, and commentary from an Acton perspective. Every day served up piping hot and fresh on the Acton Institute Power Blog. Blog Blog.acton.org is the address. Well, we've got a good podcast for you today. We are joined uh, on the podcast uh, via the phone by Ambassador... Francis Rooney, who served as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See from 2005 to 2008 during the presidency of George W. Bush, and uh, he has just released a new book about the Vatican and about his time as ambassador to the Vatican with some insight that ought to be interesting to our audience. Uh, The book is called The Global Vatican, and in his book, Ambassador Rooney takes a look uh, at the inside of the Catholic Church, its role in politics and diplomacy worldwide, and uh, the sometimes extraordinary relationship that exists between the United States and the Holy See. You'd expect uh, the ambassador to uh, have an inside track on that information, and he does. He takes a a good look at the the way that the United States and the Vatican can can benefit from each other's presence on the world diplomatic stage. And he, uh, he certainly argues that there's a lot to be gained on both sides of that relationship and talks about it pretty extensively in his book. So, without further ado, I want to turn the microphone over to Michael Matheson Miller as he talks with Ambassador Francis Rooney. What was your
1: main reason in deciding to write this book? Why did you why did you decide to write the book?
2: Well, when we came back, you know, I had the opportunity to speak a little bit about diplomacy and particularly the Holy See mission and and I found out that while people were always very interested they had very little knowledge of the role the Holy See had played uh, in international affairs over the years and then and and really always seemed to receive the message well uh, when I would make the argument that in the world we live in today it's it's more important than ever to have their kind of unique soft power voice and then the other thing is to 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 uh, why we have a mission there and why it's important to have a mission there and, you know, the whole why do we have a mission with the church and explain the sovereignty of the Holy See and all that. So the long and short of it is I thought, well, I'll tell you, I'll write this, I'll write a book about this and try to advance people's understanding of of these two points, the importance of the Holy See in the world and the importance of its diplomatic relation with the United States.
1: Now, let's talk a little bit about the diplomatic relationship in the United States. It didn't start out, uh, on a great footing, right? You had a lot of you talk in your book about a lot of anti-Catholicism, a lot of suspicion um, on behalf of people in the United States of the Catholic Church of the Holy See and some suspicion on the side of uh, the Holy See of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. You know, these two seemingly, seemingly aligned sovereigns, when you think about their fundamental uh, premises and, and principles, uh, were kept, kept apart for many years for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, first of all, this, the anti-Catholic prejudice that rose in colonial America was was news to me when I researched the book, and I became I felt something important to try to write about. Is here Maryland even was founded as a Catholic colony, and not so much more than a hundred years after its founding, the anti-Catholic prejudice had arose to the point where Catholics couldn't own property. You know, I put that thing in the book about John Carroll. Helping Ben Franklin and Sam Adams against the British, but he couldn't vote in Maryland at the time. And uh, and then the on the other side of the coin, of course, the Holy See was pretty monarchical, and we fought a revolution to get away from monarchism. And and up until quite recently, they they still, they, some could argue they still maintain some vestiges of a monarchical organization. I think Cardinal Ratz spoken up a little bit about the need for a more American. Uh, executive style of organization where you have cross-functional skill leverage and horizontal communication instead of the old monarchical silos that we, we face in the Curia. And I think that's what the Pope's working on right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And so it was surprising to you. I mean, you, you look at this, at the anti-Catholicism, and I think that is surprising to a lot of Americans to realize you know Catholics couldn't vote, Catholics couldn't maybe hold property in some places. And um, it, you you. The, the kind of the image of early America is broad religious freedom, but it wasn't that. How, how did that right. begin and, to and change? And all these,
2: these many different colonies, you know, were all—many of them were founded on strong religious orientations, you know. Uh, I think it was like Congregationalist in Rhode Island and Calvinist, and, and then in New York the same, you know, the Calvinist and the Puritans in Massachusetts. And, and, and you know, Virginia, Patrick Henry wanted it to be an Anglican theocracy, And so I think it started to change over time with the, uh, first of all, you had the Irish and Italian immigrants, which probably increased the the, the backlash against Catholics, and the Eastern European ones uh, in certain areas. But over time, as those people became successful in the country and the Catholic Church grew, I I think the the, the prejudice started to wane until the, uh, the, I guess probably the, the, the ultimate point of inflection was the election of John Kennedy. because. The social scientists have studied the anti-Catholic prejudice and saw that it declined rapidly after 1960.
1: Interesting. Now, you also talked about this. There was a partial thawing during um, the pontificate of Pius the Ninth. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it was kind of a short-term thaw. You know, Pius the Ninth came in and and he created all that um, uh, hope that uh, that the Holy See was going to embrace modernity and and change and be much less monarchical and therefore be much more uh, similar to the way the united states was and less european that was seemed to be the perception and you know he electrified the vatican and seemed to be embracing modernity and, and change and then he and then he got backed up when the uh, unification of italy and the resurgimento evolved uh, and it scared him and they went back into their shell and he ended up being considered Arch conservative by the end
1: right now that now official official relations with the United States I mean there had been some communication but official relations oh, did black regions were it was late as 1984 isn't that correct
2: yeah the very end of 1983 uh, President Reagan got passed through the Senate the the, uh, the establishment of an ambassador level mission but as you say there have been previous very important personal representatives off and on over the years
1: and now what what number ambassador were you oh man I think seven. Seven. I mean it's I'm pretty amazing. Sure. I mean here you are writing this book, you know, two thousand five, you're the seventh, only the seventh ambassador. One of the things I thought that was kind of interesting as we talk about maybe your experience as ambassador, is early in the book you say you were talking about going to meet Pope Benedict and, and I'd like you to describe that in, in a second, but you you said it kind of struck you that it was I think the two hundred and fifty sixth Pope or was that the number, the two uh, to the 44th president or whatever the numbers exactly were. And like, wow, I mean, there's a, a radical difference. We're just a very young country dealing with this 2,000-year-old institution that has long relations. And, had, and I remember you talk about the one point that one of the things that struck you was endurance, 2,000 years, nations rise, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, and still the church has maintained. How, how, what was it like for you as an American and a businessman going into a world of, that, that has long traditions and also the diplomatic world. What was that like for you?
2: Well, it, it, the, the diplomatic part was, was a, a newly acquired skill, because in business, you spend your time learning how to speak clearly and candidly with customers and employees so they understand the message you're trying to communicate. Many times in diplomacy, you're trying to do just the opposite you know, take up some space with words, but really say very little. And that was an acquired skill for me. I'm not sure that I totally have it down sometimes. And, uh, but in the non, uh, non, non-diplomatic non point of view, the, the, in, the, in terms of the environment with the Holy See, it was really spectacular for both me and my family to, to be there in, in the Vatican, to have an official role to play, interacting with the leading uh, curial, and particularly secretary of state officials. And to have the opportunity to meet the Pope a few times, not to mention the tremendous Catholic um, ceremonies that we got to attend uh, close up, like you say, you know, with reserved seats and everything, like Midnight Mass and Holy Thursday and St. John Lateran and the, uh, the uh, Good Friday vigil, and just really unique experiences.
1: What, what were some of the, I mean, besides the ones you just mentioned, what were some of the, the maybe the couple highlights over the years that really stand out to you during that time?
2: Well, certainly the visits with the Pope, they were spectacular. And starting with the first one, when I think I put in the book, I was too nervous to speak. You know, when the, we walked in there to the go through all the Apostolic Palace, it's very ritualistic uh, ceremony, where you go all the way through the Apostolic Palace by all the different rooms, and you get to the end in the Pope's library, and, you know, we did the photo ops of the family, my, my wife Kathleen and the kids, and my mother and an aunt, and uh, and then they shut the big door, and it's just me and the Pope sitting on either side of a desk, and uh, I was pretty nervous. And and so he started talking, and he made me feel right at home. And and uh, we got down to business, and that was really fascinating thing for me to be in that position and to be representing the United States and President Bush there as well.
1: Now you told and, him you were nervous, right? You said, "I'm a little nervous." And I he did. Said, and what did he and, say?
2: And then he, I said, "I guess you're used to that." He said, "Yeah, why? Well, yeah, I am." He's got a great sense of humor, Pope Benedict,
1: by the way. You know, I was talking to somebody, they said, when you meet the Pope, you're not going to know what to say. So just say, please pray for my family. And the one guy told me the story and he said, so I met the Pope. I was like, I'm going to be fine. And all of a sudden he looked up, there was the Pope, and he said, please pray for my family. That's all that could come out. So
2: it's, it's, it's a very moving moment for sure. And then when I went back with Mrs. Bush one time and her daughter, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, this is Mrs. Bush. Okay, she's the first lady. She's the one that does, controls the agenda and does the talking. I'm just here to be helpful. But nobody was saying a whole lot, so I had to speak up. And I was trying to be mindful of not speaking up too much, you know, so I'd say a couple of things and get the conversation going. And then, then of course, when they got on some, some issues that were, were very much interesting to Mrs. Bush, like things going on in Africa and things, so the conversation took off, and it was a really successful visit.
1: Well, tell me, uh, you said, you know, the Pope Benedict had a good sense of humor, but a lot of people— you know the image of Pope Benedict is this kind of harsh man, but from all I've heard, you know, sometimes I've even heard people describe him as too nice. Um, tell me a little bit about about your experiences with Pope Benedict. Well,
2: he exudes. Well, they all exude holiness. I mean, they're they're anointed by the Holy Spirit, but but they he exudes a kind of uh, calm that, that comes from scholarly kind of calm and pastoral calm, and and he's just very. Um, soothing to speak with him, and and brilliant, of course. He speaks like a deep philosopher, and very clear uh, but profound language. And so it was really, uh, I thought, very, very uh, much different than some of the way the media had portrayed him. And this was early on, you know, when the media was still calling him God's Rottweiler. I'm sitting there meeting with him. I'm saying, this is not at all the way he is. In fact, about that trip with Mrs. Bush, when... What had happened was um, she was coming over to head the Olympics, and she wanted to meet the Pope. And there was some talk that she might not come to the Olympics unless she could meet the Pope. It was that important to her. And, and so uh, the White House said, go find out if you know that could happen, and so I did. And, and uh, Cardinal Sedano said, well, you know, the Pope's never really met anyone yet that's not a head of state or a newly accredited ambassador or a big group. But he said he'd check into it. Well, a couple of days later, we had the diplomatic presentation for the Pope when everybody goes up and meets the Pope, says hi. And I walked up with my wife, Kathleen, and he looked up and he kind of smiled and said, I guess we're going to see Mrs. Bush. And I hadn't been told yet that we had a meeting yet. And uh, and so I said, well, I'll tell you, if you say so, your holiness. And he started laughing.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. So, yeah, so he was just kind of, he was, sometimes he looks a little mischievous. So was he a little mischievous? I heard John Paul II yeah, would have some fun, too.
2: Yeah of a mischievous, quizzical look. And, uh, he's, uh, and I think that's a nice balance with his deep philosophical scholarship.
1: Let's talk a little bit about when you, you know, you you write about this in the book, um, the Regensburg Address that Benedict gave when he visited Germany, which caused a lot of um, reaction in the Islamic world. And, and, and he, you know, the interesting thing is that he was really speaking to the West, right? He was saying that our understanding of reason as simply the empirical is deeply problematic because we can't speak rationally about the most important human things, justice, truth, beauty, goodness, friendship, love, and that really we need to expand our concept of reason. Um, Tell me about your experience there Listening to, you know, with the Regensburg and, and, and some of the political and diplomatic challenges that came from
2: that. Okay. Well, and, and first of all, I, I, I agree with you. I think that that concept of is linked into the secularism, the other point of Holy See diplomacy, which Pope Francis calls materialism, that when we think we've got it all figured out because we're so secular, we, truth and fact, do not. But, uh, and I tried to write that in the book. I put the quote from Carter Worrell about all things ultimately being theological questions, et cetera. But on a practical level, it was a really interesting time for a variety of reasons. First of all, you had the Pope speaking out, using the soft power voice of the Holy See, as only the Pope can do, about the most pressing subject facing the world at the time, radical Islamic violence. And the White House was very interested in making sure that he deliberately did that and that he was not going to be pressured into backing up on it. And so that made some interesting work for me. The other thing that was fascinating was to watch the pressure that descended on that. I don't know if you were there at the time, so you probably recall it, too. The, the pressure of the whole world kind of focused on the Holy See there in a somewhat hostile manner. It wasn't like a papal transition. And, and, and so there was a bit of a siege mentality there for a week or two as, as, as while this was happening. And then, of course, when the Pope disarmed everybody with his meeting with the uh, Muslim clerics, where he basically apologized that they didn't understand, but didn't apologize for what he said, which I thought was brilliant diplomacy. And then, subsequent to that, to watch the ensuing reactions around the world, started out hostile by the Muslims, or many Muslims, but ended up with several groups of Muslim clerics and governments uh, taking actions which showed. Uh, that Pope Benedict had, had, had made a very good point, that the Islam needs to come into consensus with the modern world. And there was a couple, there's one group I wrote about in the book, some 38 clerics, um, reached that decision and, and made a communique about it. You know, Pope King Abdullah from Saudi Arabia came and paid a state visit to the Pope. Uh, several other Arab countries opened uh, missions. To the Holy See, brought the total, I think, up over 30 now of Islamic countries that have representation in the diplomatic corps. So a lot of important things ensued, which were very interesting to see how positive the um, the speech was in confronting radical Islam, even though most people didn't want to admit that it was positive at all.
1: Let's talk, that's interesting, yeah, that's very interesting, in fact. Let's talk a little bit about the second thing you mentioned, that, and that was part of this Regensburg Address, is that the challenge of secularism this is another theme that you you address it's it's really one of the areas that the holy see speaks into really like nobody else talk about you know your experience there and some of the challenges uh, of secularism and also maybe from your own personal experience you're you're obviously a, a representative of a secular government dealing with the the holy see Talk a little bit about these challenges of secularism and maybe some of the alliance that the United States has with the Holy See and then some of the maybe, um, you know, some of the challenges.
2: Well, um, you kind of hit the nail on the head with with your comment about what Regensburg meant. You know, the reason and religion and religion and reason are are both sides is kind of the same coin. You know, the the need for uh, tempering. Uh, abstract religious fervor that descends into violence with some type of modern rationality is one side of it, and the other side is to to remember that uh, we don't have everything figured out in our secular world, that there's a role for God, and it's a very important one, and that that linkage of uh, belief in the Almighty to justice, good government, good civics, etc., is pretty consistent. It's been written about since the time of St. Augustine, and, and um that's, I think, very important principle that the Holy See can advance as well, that we don't have it all figured out. And when humans start to think they do, and they get the dialectical materialism of Russia, or you get the the uh, the, act, the, the efforts of the fascists like Napoleon and Hitler kind of try to do the same thing, you know, you, you, you create a, an opportunity for a very sterile environment where human beings can become pretty hostile to each other. And uh, I put a quote in the, a book about that Pope Benedict's, expression of that that the basically the paraphrase that the belief that there's a God gives rise to the to the concept of natural rights of man and, and human dignity which is essential for good
1: behavior. And and here you have really this is the this connection between, say, the founding of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, with this deep recognition of our inalienable rights coming from God. Um, maybe talk about this unique relationship perhaps that you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation between the Holy See and the United States. And, and you, we've talked a little bit about why it's taken a long time, but maybe just talk about that unique relationship. Well,
2: right. I mean, we are the—I uh, tried to make the point of the book that it's ironic that the Enlightenment scholars, particularly John Locke and, I guess, uh, Montesquieu, uh, resisted any kind of uh, alignment between the things they were writing about, natural rights of man and natural law, with historic Catholic Church teachings. It's like St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and all those people didn't exist. And and I think that that, I, I don't know for sure, people could speculate why, but the only logical reason I can see is that they linked the Church so closely with the monarchist governments of Europe against whom they were writing, that they couldn't separate the, the Holy See's uh, fundamental orientation towards human rights with its Monarchical organization. And it's really uh, too bad because uh, if you read, well, I try to put it in the book to make the comparison clear there. Basically, they're, they're using the same principles and describing them in the same way. And so here you have the United States and the Holy See, really two of the only countries ever squarely founded on the natural rights of man versus uh, having your rights granted by some statist authority. The other thing is, we were the first to come up with the uh, idea of religious freedom in our organic Constitution, and um, Pope Benedict certainly got that. He was very thankful for the First Amendment, and he said it's been a great experiment that Europe would have been uh, wise to have had. And, um, you know, it's it's created a, a religious pluralism, and a, uh, it's taken a little time to, 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 to create the pluralism, but it's ultimately done it, where we have a fairly religious society and a fairly tolerant one.
0: And with that, we are going to bring to a close this week's edition of Radio Free Acton. more of Michael Matheson Miller's interview with Ambassador Francis Rooney will be forthcoming in future editions of Radio Free Acton. Please do stay tuned for that. And I want to thank uh, Michael Matheson Miller, of course, for taking the interviewer's chair this week. He did another fine job. Ambassador Rooney, we are grateful that you took the time to join us on Radio Free Acton. I want to once again remind you the book is called The Global Vatican, it's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all your standard online booksellers, and you can probably find it in good brick-and-mortar booksellers around as well. want to thank you all for joining us as well uh, as we round out this episode of Radio Free Acton. We love having you along with us on our podcast. We hope if you haven't subscribed already, you'll do so. And stay tuned to the Acton Institute Power Blog, of course, for lots of great uh, news, articles, commentary, and links uh, from, uh, from the Acton Institute. It's blog.actin.org. That's the website to bookmark for the blog. Radio.actin.org is uh, the place to go for all our podcast archives. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been a pleasure bringing you this episode of Radio Free Actin, and we'll see you next time.